Welcome back to DevCast with me, Doug Kearney. Today I have a great colleague from the States, from Redmond, Ross Gardel here, and we will talk about containers. And the first uh, impression I got from Ross was at an internal conference where he started uh, his presentations showing just an Ubuntu machine. And it was really impressive for me to see that we have guys that use Ubuntu as the first and and foremost operating systems. So today, Ross and I will talk about uh, containers, and of course, containers on Linux, but also containers on Windows Server, what you can do with them as a developer. So welcome here, uh, Ross. Hi, thanks. Thanks for uh, bringing me on, Doug. <laughs> so who are you and what's your uh, responsibility at Microsoft? Um, so, as you said, my name's Ross Gardler. I'm uh, I'm an Englishman. I'm an expat here in uh, in Redmond in the U.S. And I moved over here a couple of years ago to join Microsoft. Um, prior to that, I have been a, a consultant uh, specializing in open source software uh, all of my uh, IT career. Um, so, well over twenty years there. And. Um, some colleagues of mine had, had uh, moved over to Microsoft. Um, some colleagues from the open source world had moved over to Microsoft. And uh, I was watching with interest as an open source guy from the outside. Why are these people who I respect going to Microsoft? Um, and uh, eventually, I, uh, I found myself saying yes to, uh, to an offer from Microsoft as well. Uh, that was with Microsoft Open Technologies, which was a subsidiary. Um, of Microsoft, where we did a lot of open source work, but that subsidiary is now being consumed back into uh, into Microsoft, uh, which is great news because it means that we're doing a lot more with with open source, and and that's what my role is. Um, specifically, I work in the Azure Compute team, um, and I work uh, a lot on ensuring that Linux workloads work well uh, inside or inside of Azure, uh, and even more specifically, I focus on uh, containers and the uh, Azure Container Service that we recently pre-announced. Great. I, I'm a Windows guy, as I said to Ross before the before the, um, uh, we started the interview, but I really need to say to you, Ross, my first operating system that I worked with was Microsoft Xenix. Did you know about that? I've never heard of it. Never heard of it. It's just, <laughs> it was uh, Microsoft's uh, first Unix operating system. Oh really? Okay, yeah. so I know I know the guy who built that. That was yeah. uh, ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it so. was before Windows One, I think, or in the same uh, time. Uh, I I started working professionally in uh, nineteen eighty eight, and then uh, the first was to to learn to install Xenix. Ah, well, there you go. My my first operating was CPM. I don't know if you ever came across that. I, I did, I did. On my uh, Vic 128, had a dual boot. <laughs> I think oh. we should stop this. We're beginning to sound old. Yeah, we probably are. So, so, so Ross, anyway, what, what is container and why is it so high right now? Um, yeah. Okay. So it, it is hot, and and that's that's a a, a really uh, a, a really um, important thing to realise that it it's become a very hot topic in in recent years, and um, many people think that it's a new technology, and and in fact it's not. It's been around for um, you know many years. I don't know precisely how many years, but we're talking in the fifteen year time frame. Um, it's been in the Linux kernel for a long time. People have been using um, container technologies in Linux for a long time. Um, it's also been inside of um, Microsoft. Um, we've been building and using container services internally in Microsoft for um, a similar amount of time. 
Um, so this technology is not new. What's new is that um, mere mortals like me can actually use it now. Um, it used to be that it was very low level, deeply down in there in the kernel, and, and you really had to know your stuff to be able to make use of these things. But then a company called Docker came along a couple of years ago now, and Docker have really made it accessible so that mere mortals like me can actually use this thing. Um, and why should I use it? Why is a, is, a, is a really good question. And, and um, people often get confused between uh, the advantage of, of containers over the advantage of virtual machines, and they often compare the two. Um, so we'll start from there and we'll dispel some of the myths a, a, along the way. Um, so I'm assuming most people here are familiar with a virtual machine, the idea that you have a hypervisor on top of a uh, host operating system, and then you can run another operating system within that hypervisor, and you bring with it a full operating system. So you can run Linux on Windows, you can run a different flavor of Linux on Windows or Windows on Linux and all of the combinations you could possibly imagine. Um, and we all know the advantages of, of using virtual machines. It allows, gives us higher density, et cetera, et cetera. Um, containers are similar in that you can run um, new workloads on top of a host operating system. Um, but they don't bring a whole operating system with them. They only bring a very, very thin layer. And um, they use the host operating system for most of their um, uh, uh, resource management and those kinds of activities. So all you have is this very thin layer of an operating system and then whatever application you want to run inside of that container. And because you have this thin layer, there's two major differences that you have. The first is this, the size of the images that you're running is significantly reduced, which allows you to get much higher density. And the second uh, big advantage is the speed start up and stop times. It's seconds rather than um, minutes for your typical virtual machine. And so they're very, very useful if you want higher density. They're very, very useful if you want faster start stop times to respond to actions and what's happening within your application. There's other advantages and disadvantages of both approaches. They're, they're not a replacement for virtual machines. Um, but uh, they are an alternative to that are applied in, in those kinds of use cases, higher density and faster startup stop times. These images that you create, what, what's included in them? Is it only my code uh, or a code for running in MySQL code or is it something else also? There is something else. You do have to start from a, a base uh, operating system image, but it's a very, very thin layer. It's not bringing the, all of the items that you bring. It's essentially the kernel. Uh, and in Linux world, it's a technology called C groups often, or it can be LXC. Um, and and um, that brings um, enough functionality to the container that it can communicate down to the core operating system on the, on the host. So it's that plus any libraries you need for your application and then your application code itself. Mm, okay, yeah. I, I just want to take one step back to the advantages as well because I just realized I missed a very, very important one. Code portability as well. These containers, um, once you've built the container, you can run any Linux container on any Linux operating system in any environment. Um, so they're self-contained, unlike um, virtual machines, which you can't use a you can't run a Hyper-V um, virtual machine on, say, a Zen hypervisor. 
Um, in the case of containers, they are portable. They're not portable across operating systems, though. So you can't run a Linux container on a Windows operating system or a Windows container on a Linux operating system. And that's because we don't bring this full OS. We're only bringing a very thin layer of the OS. I really don't know how about 32 bits or 64 bits. If I compile it to 32 bits or 64, is it in the Linux world and the difference there? Or can I use, a, if I compile for 32 bits, is it okay to run it on 64 and, and vice versa? You know, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I imagine you can run 32-bit on 64-bit hosts. Yeah, but the other way But around. the other way around, I would, I would guess that you can't because of this thin layer. There'll be, there'll be differences in the kernels. But honestly, I've never tried it and um, I've never looked into it. Interesting question. Okay. How about isolation? Because that's a big thing for me. I, I really don't understand how isolated is the container from the host operating system and the container from each other. Um, so this is one of the areas where virtual machines definitely give you an advantage. Um, they're not very isolated. So we also compare containers to processes running on the operating system itself. And of course, processes are not isolated at all. Um, you know, you, you get outside of that process, you've got full access to the operating system. And in the case of containers, there is a little bit of isolation because you do have this thin layer between the uh, application and the host operating system. You also have the, the engine that, that we call it the Docker engine because we're using Docker here. Um, but uh, you also have that thin layer which provides another level of isolation. But honestly, you're not getting even close to the isolation that you have in um, virtualized environments. And so what we say is you really don't want to be using, um, you, do, you don't want to be running containers on a machine that you don't own. Mm. It's okay to run it in the cloud on a VM that you own because you get in the isolation from the VM. But you want to know that um, if anybody breaks out of somebody else's container, they can, they're not getting into mm. your container. So how is it about shared resources then, network cards, uh, processors and, and hard drives and storage? How, um, is, how is this isolated then? Uh, so, so the Docker engine handles that. So um, the, 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 uh, all of the communications with the host operating system go down through the Docker engine. Um, and, and that will share the resources appropriate. That will assign, in the case of networks, for example, uh, each container, if there are any network ports it needs to expose, it gets, <coughs> mapped, it gets mapped to a, 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 a port within the engine, and then that maps it internally um, to the real network. Um, same thing with storage. You can, um, you can share... Um, parts of the storage on the host through the engine and into the container. Um, but generally speaking, um, containers are used in a stateless environment. And so you're not really storing any state. You don't have any long-lived storage for most containers. Obviously, you will have some things like databases and, and maybe key value pairs and so on elsewhere. But generally speaking, containers are used in stateless environments. Yeah, I had a question just about databases. Is databases a good... Uh thing to have in the container such as MySQL or a SQL server? Um, the jury's pretty much out on that one, to be honest. Um, you'll find people who will say, yeah, yeah, of course, you can put anything into a container. Um, and, and, you know, there are people out there who are literally putting everything into containers. 
um, then you'll find other people who say, well, no, containers are not optimized for stateful environments and, and the storage story uh, is yet to be fully matured. Um, and so things like databases, let's keep those in the virtual machine. Um, and, and so it's a, there's no clear answer. Um, it really depends on the use case. It really depends on precisely what you're trying to achieve by, by adopting the containers. Um, I personally, I, I think that most certainly enterprise scale applications are going to look at a mix of virtual machines and container technologies. Okay, so if we go back to isolation, so uh, security and such things are not as good because of the isolation that you don't have. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say security is not as good because, you know, it's all relative. You can make mistakes and, and expose things in, in every environment and you can lock everything down so that it's perfectly secure in every environment. Um, I think it is fair to say that because of that reduced isolation, there are higher risks. So, as you said before, uh, you should uh, have your own virtual machine or physical servers where you run your containers. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Is it any problems to? Uh, are we starting to use uh, physical machines again uh, and run our containers on that, or are we still using virtual machine as our host operating system around containers? Uh, do you see any trends there? Um, at the moment, I would say the vast majority are, run, are, are running in VMs. Um, but of course, there's lots of interest in, in running them on, uh, on the bare metal. And there are organizations out there that are running on bare metal um, at this point. Um, again, it depends on the use case and the environment. You get advantages of running in a hypervisor. <coughs> Um, and and you know if you if those advantages are good for you then you take them you do get a performance hit as a result if you're looking at performance maybe you do want to look at bare metal um, but today here at Microsoft um, we are currently only running in hypervised environments mm, it gives so much uh, <laughs> positive effect to the the VMs where you can restart and move and so on exactly you do get certain uh, advantages from that approach so what what does Docker do? Why is it so important? So, um, as I said earlier on, it really takes this this 15-year-old rocket science technology um, and turns it into something accessible for, for mere mortals. Um, and so it provides uh, a number of tools. Um, the most, um, most mature and probably most important part of that tool chain um, is the Docker engine. And this is roughly an analogous to the um, the hypervisor. Um, so it's the bit that allows you to run containers on your host. Um, so the Docker engine is is originally Linux only. Um, we are porting it, uh, and we have in fact ported it um, to uh, Windows Server. Um, so in TP3 of Windows Server, um, we had the first version of Docker um, uh, available for that. Um, the second, the second tool that they provide is the Docker command line interface. And what this does is a number of things. It enables you to build containers. So it provides a way for you to describe what a container should look like. That's called a Docker file. And then it provides a build command that enables you to build that container. And when it builds the containers, it does it in a layered way. Um, so you, you, you don't 
it's not like a virtual machine where you build the whole thing from scratch. You pull down the, the, the base layer, which might be, let's say, an Ubuntu or a Red Hat or a CoreOS operating system. And then you install packages that you need on top of that. And those, each of those goes in as a layer. Um, and then you install your application, et cetera. So you can build up in a, in a scalable way. So you start with a base operating system. You might then install all of node packages you need. And that then becomes the base for all of your node applications. And so you get maintainability through that layered approach. Do you even roll back uh, a layer in an image or in a file? Um, you, you can do. There is a kind of rudimentary version control approach um, to storing these layers. So yes, absolutely you can. However, um, typically you wouldn't do that. And the reason for that is um, it, building these containers is so fast that, that there's no real need to roll back. If you've got something that didn't work out for you, you simply change your, your, your configuration of that machine and rebuild it. And the Docker build command is intelligent enough to start from whichever layer is is the last chain uh, last unchanged layer in your um, build structure and so it's very intelligent it works very very quickly it's very effective um, it's not like building a virtual machine which can take you know a significant amount of time typically it'll take um, seconds or, or, or possibly minutes for a particularly large container but typically looking at sub one minute to build a new container you said uh, a docker file is it the same as a docker image no, the Docker file describes what the Docker image has in it. So it's a, it's think of it as configuration as code. Okay. Um, and and so the the Docker build command t takes the Docker file and then builds a Docker image. And then and the you run the image. Exactly. And and the the CLI provides tooling to do that as well. So you then do a Docker run, uh, which starts up the container. Um, and that CLI can work on your local host or it can work over the network and manage remote hosts for you. Um, and it also provides a whole load of other utility functions, things like looking at what processes are running on your hosts and looking at the logs from those containers and, and things like that. So the Docker CLI is the main tool for, for working with individual containers. Before we, we start talking about how we can, for example, use um, uh, con the con container technology in our when we do develop an application, I, I really want to understand more about the, the new Windows server containers. Mm -hmm. uh, what's that? It's exactly the same thing, um, <laughs> but on Windows. Um, so I mentioned earlier on, you, you uh, this is originally a Linux technology, but we've been doing container-like things uh, inside of Microsoft for 15 years. So all of the technologies, all of the uh, all of the functionality that you need is already there in the in the Windows kernel. So what we're doing is we're exposing that um, through the Docker engine. And the reason we've chosen the Docker engine um, is because that's the company and the open source project that has made uh, this technology accessible to the rest of the world. It has a huge ecosystem around it now. And by adopting those APIs and those command line tools, et cetera, we, um, we, we are able to both leverage the community that exists already and bring the added advantage of being able to use the same tooling in the Windows container environment. And so in real terms, it means we're, we're porting the Docker CLI to Windows, which is already done, and the Docker engine to Windows, which is in TP3. 
Do I understand that we have two flavors of hype uh, of uh, our server uh, Windows Server containers? One called Hyper-V containers, and one not calling Hyper-V containers, or is it the That's same? That's absolutely right. They're, well, they're they're the same but different. Um, okay. <laughs> so um, the container part of it is the same. So the container in both cases is still a Docker container and managed by the Docker CLI, etc. What changes, though, between a Windows Server container and a Hyper-V container is um, the isolation. So what we've done with Hyper-V containers is we've wrapped the container in a very lightweight Hyper-V uh, virtual machine. And it is a very lightweight virtual machine. It provides just enough to provide an increased level of isolation around that container. Um, and, and so uh, it, it has some um, drawbacks. It isn't as fast to start off as the bare container is because you have this thin virtual machine around it. Um, but the benefit is the increased isolation. Um, and where you would use one over the other depends very much on your, uh, on your use case. But the important thing, the portability of the code that we talked about earlier on remains. You run exactly the same container as a Windows Server container as you would run as a Hyper-V container. But uh, is it faster to, to start a Hyper-V container than a Hyper-V machine? Yes, it is significantly faster. Okay, great, great. So, should we talk a bit about how you use container in the development and test process? I I know that you have a you have a talk at Ashercom that was last week when we recorded this uh, about this. Uh, um, yeah, how you use it in 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 the process of developing things? Could you please give me an overview of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, obviously there are many patterns that people use a technology like this, but one of the most popular ones at the moment is in the dev test scenario. Um, and the reason for that is the portability that we've talked about already with containers. Once you have this container, that can be deployed in any environment. And so if you imagine a, a simple two-tier application, um, and I'm a web developer working on the uh, on the front end of this, and you're the working on the back end on a REST API. Um, so you make some changes to your REST API, and um, you uh, test that, and you say, okay, that works great. So you build a new version of your container, um, and that goes off into a registry, which means I now have access to that container. And I can now continue my development, and I will automatically pull down your updated um, REST API. Uh, and next time I try to run my application on my laptop, it pulls down your REST API. It fires up that container on my development machine. It fires up my own container on, that, on my development machine. And I'm testing against your latest build. Uh, of the application. Now, the key difference here between sharing the source code is I haven't had to build your source code. I haven't had to go into your source code and understand what's going on. I've just been given this binary container that I can run against. And, and likewise, it works the other way around. When I update my container, you're able to work with that immediately. Um, one of the other benefits is that I'm, I'm doing this on my uh, laptop uh, or my development machine. And um, I can use another tool that comes from the Docker stable called Docker Compose. 
And Docker Compose describes how an application is put together. So it describes how the different containers are plugged together. And so I can do a command Docker Compose up. And what that will do is it will pull down your latest container. It will build my container and it will deploy them to my local machine configured exactly the same way that they would be configured if they were in production. Hmm. And so um, I have a mini production environment on my laptop. Um, I can scale up, I can scale down, I can do all of the things that you would need to do in production, obviously within the constraints of the fact that I'm working on a single development machine. Once I'm happy with that, I can then say, right, we're ready to go to staging or to testing, whatever the next phase is. We'll go, to, go into the test cluster here and deploy it into a, uh, a duplicate of the real world um, environment. Um, and it's the same command. So when it goes off to the team who are operating the testing environment, they run the same command. They run the same docker compose up command. It uses exactly the same configuration files that we were using at development. The only difference is instead of deploying across a single machine, now we can be deploying across multiple machines that are a, 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 a duplicate of the production environment. Hmm. Um, and of course, the, the, that just makes for an easier flow. And the same thing happens if we go into stage, the same thing happens if we go into production, that we can sk keep scaling up at each stage, but the configuration files and the actual binaries that we're, we're deploying are identical at every stage. Another, uh, another technology that uh, use, is uh, used uh, almost the same is, is Vagrant. What's different between Vagrant yeah. and containers? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Vagrant is very similar in this use case. The difference is Vagrant is VMs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, 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 I, I talked about a simple two-tier application, but in the demo that you referred to, um, I actually have a load balancer in there and I'm able to scale up the web application or not. And in the demo, I scale it up to having um, 20 web servers running on my on my machine as containers and I'm running load tests of, of um, you know, 20,000 users hitting those containers and I'm looking at the performance that happens on those containers. Now, there's no way I could fire up 20 virtual machines uh, on my little laptop. So it sounds from your that Vagrant is uh, not as good as uh, container technology. Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I mean, there's advantages and disadvantages in everything. Mm. Um, and and you know, if you, if you are Vagrant has uh, has uh, the advantage of you are uh, building full virtual machines and you have full control over those virtual machines. It therefore means you have more powerful. Um, storage and networking we were talking about the limitations of that earlier on you don't have those kinds of limitations if you're using vagrant um if you're in an environment where in production you're doing a a, a mixed environment of virtual machines for things like your long-lived databases but you're using containers for your uh, your your smaller services um then vagrant and um uh, um, containers work very well in in conjunction in the dev test cycle because you want to be as close as possible to the real world uh, deployment environment at every stage of the process. So I, I wouldn't use the word better, I would use the word different. Okay. Uh, one thing I, I, I'm thinking about, you talk about uh, I can make containers in my laptop and so on. If, I, if I'm on a Windows 10 machine, 
mm-hmm. what kind of technology uh, containers can I do then? Because I have not the support for Windows Server containers on Windows 10 yet, and of course I can can't run Linux containers. Yeah, so there's two ways that you would do that, uh, and you said that I was using a Linux machine uh, in the demo, and that's that's uh, that was the case for the demo. And honestly, the reason I used a Linux machine there is because I'm a Linux guy at a internal Microsoft conference. So I'm going to use a Linux machine just to prove that, you know, we do do this in Microsoft. Um, but in reality, what I use on a day-to-day basis is a Surface, which is a Windows 10 device. Um, and I do two things on that Surface to be able to work with containers. If I'm doing large-scale work, um, then I use, um, I, I fire up the cluster in Azure. Um, and so I have a, a 30 machine cluster in Azure where I'm, I'm using that and I use the Docker command line on my Windows machine, which we've ported to Windows. So I can control the Linux Azure machines in the cloud from my uh, uh, um, uh, Windows machine using the Docker CLI. The other approach you can take if you don't want to be going off up into the cloud is to run a Linux virtual machine on your uh, uh, on your. Um, machine locally and then you can use you can do it locally within that virtual machine as if you were running a a Linux machine Um, moving forwards of course um, we'll have Windows Server containers available um, and then you'll be able to run virtual machine of Windows Server on on your machine or do the same thing in the cloud with with uh, cloud hosted Windows servers do you know if we'll have the the server technology in Windows 10 also I I don't have anything to say about it at this point because I don't know exactly whether the, the I, I know it's not on the roadmap today. Um, the the goal is to get it into Windows Server today. Um, I I don't see a huge advantage in having it in Windows the desktop. Um, but I'm not part of the Windows team. So ah. another thing I I really don't know if you can answer that, but. Uh, uh, when I was uh, looking into Vagrant, uh, they have a, a very good library with images, of course, of uh, different Linux distributions and so on. And that's uh, fine because the, the licensing is no problem. How is it with, with Windows and licenses and uh, containers and such things? Do you know anything about that? So on the Linux side of things, there is the equivalent of the Vagrant machines. There's Docker Hub uh, and there's tens of thousands of uh, containers configured there. Um, But as you say, when it comes to Windows, it becomes more difficult because of the licensing issues. That's still being worked out as to exactly how that's going to happen. Um, but what we did do when we ma- made the announcement that we were bringing Docker containers to Windows Server, um, we said that we would be making those Windows containers available through Docker Hub as well. Um, so exactly how we're going to do that is still being ironed out, but we have committed to doing it. I was thinking about the the Nano version of Windows, maybe, or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I, all all these things are being worked out. Um, I mean, certainly Nano is a, a, a is an obvious choice as the uh, as the core operating system in a typical container. But uh, it, it's still being worked out by the Windows team. So uh, watch this space, and all will become clear one day. Well, we talk about production now. We, we should go and see how how should we run this in a real environment. Of course, and we talk about Azure, but 
before that, I really want to talk about the, the management or orchestration of containers because it's very simple to just put up one or two containers and get them to run. And it's very good for me, for me to demonstrate that. But if you have 100 containers and do some scaling and load balancing and such things, then it's been rather complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, it gets it can get very complicated as well because not only are you having to manage your containers, you're also having to manage the infrastructure. Um, so the tooling for managing your containers is all of the Docker tooling that we were talking about there. And, and that's fine for small scale uh, activities. They do, there is another project called uh, Docker Swarm. And what Docker Swarm does is it makes a single endpoint um, uh, sorry, let me phrase that in a different way. Um, it makes a cluster of Docker hosts look like a single Docker host. So you use the same Docker commands uh, and you would do, say, Docker compose up and Swarm does the orchestration and the scheduling of that across the multiple machines and it manages all of that complexity of the machines. So that's one approach. Um, Swarm is a, a relatively new project. Swarm is is uh, great at providing that single endpoint, but its orchestration and scheduling is um, uh, is yet to be proven. I would uh, I think is the fairest way of of, of putting it. Um, so what's happening there is um, there is a another project called Apache Mesos. And Apache Mesos is a very popular orchestration technology. It's used in companies like Twitter and Airbnb and, uh, and Apple as Siri runs on this. Um, and that's, that is production ready, that is proven in production. Um, and so there is a connector between Swarm and Mesos, um, which allows you to run Swarm uh, for its single endpoint, um, but gives you Mesos as the orchestration and, and management of that uh, infrastructure. And those tools simplify the process of managing your applications significantly. Um, there are others as well, but those are the ones that we're currently focused on um, for, for, for various reasons. Another popular one in terms of um, uh, being talked about is Kubernetes. Uh, which comes from Google. Um, we do make sure that that runs on Azure as well, um, but our focus is on uh, Swarm and Mesos at, at this time. So if you install, a, want to do a production-ready uh, container cluster today in Azure, you should, of course, uh, set up some virtual machine as you had in your cluster, uh, install Swarm and, uh, and Mesos on that, and then run the containers on that. Absolutely, but we'll do it. We're making it much easier than you having to set them up. Um, so this is something that's brand new. Um, we announced this at AzureCon, um, or pre-announced, I should say. Uh, it's not yet available as a service, but people can kick the tires on this today. Um, we uh, have provided an ARM template that will stand up that cluster for you. Um, in moving forwards, we will be providing that as a first-class resource within um, ARM. So ARM is the uh, Azure Resource Manager. Um, it's a way of managing Azure um, resources in code. And so what this does is it enables you to say, I want a container service and I want it to have 10 hosts and three masters. 
uh, and that the masters control the orchestration. That's where Mesos and Swarm and the things we talked about run. And then the hosts are where the actual containers are executed. Um, this will be built on top of uh, VM scale sets, which is another service which is uh, just entered private preview and will be going GA in the near future. And this allows you to um, manage that uh, those agents and scale up and scale down um, very easily, uh, which is the other part of managing an application. We talked about how Swarm and Mesos and so on can help you uh, manage your actual app running code and your application, but you also need to manage the infrastructure that it's running on. And so what we're doing with the Azure Container Service is providing a way for you to uh, easily manage that infrastructure, starting from standing up a, a, a cluster, but also managing it on, a, on an ongoing basis, things like monitoring, things like scaling up and scaling down and, and, and those kinds of items. Uh, what's the difference with the Azure Container Service and uh, the new service fabric? Because it um, almost feels the same for me. Yep, and um, people ask that question a great deal. Um, so th there, are, there are a number of differences, just like all things like this. First of all, service fabric is a, uh, a much more complete system in its own right. So Service Fabric gives you an application model. Service Fabric gives you um, ways to manage uh, stateful applications, which is not something that Docker does easily at this point. Um, uh, but Service Fabric is Windows only and uh, Service Fabric does not work with containers. It, they, they have this concept called containers, but it, it's, a, it's the same word for a different thing. Um, so they're not containers in the Linux world sense. Now, Service Fabric are adding Linux support and are adding um, containers support, uh, but our customers are asking for this now. And so we're doing the Azure Container Service to be able to give that to customers now. So um, in the future, we maybe see some uh, a merge between these two services or? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what customers want. Uh, as to whether we would do that. that. That's entirely possible that we would find that these services become closer and closer together over time and, and it no longer makes sense to have them separately. Um, uh, on the other side, you might say that actually the fact that the container service that we're building is built purely on open source software, that is very attractive to some types of customer. Whereas Service Fabric is very opinionated, it, it's very it's optimized significantly for running on uh, on Azure, uh, and that in, can be very attractive to other types of customers. Yeah, um, a very important point you you you're alluding to here is uh, the lock in uh, that the customers are very afraid to be locked into Azure or locked into Amazon or locked into Google. Is the container technology the answer to that? Um, well, this is another yes and no uh, question. So uh, if you look at it at three different layers, this is the way I look at it, at least when I'm thinking about how to design the Azure Container Service. At the very top level, you have your application code. And what Docker does for us is it brings us highly portable application code. We talked about that earlier on. And, and we talked about going from the dev machine to the cloud, but we could equally have said going from um, on-premise to public cloud or from one public cloud to another public cloud or any of those combinations, you have that kind of portability with Docker containers um, at the app level. The next level down is the one that you brought up about orchestration and scheduling and, and management of the uh, application in production. Um, 
And in that space, um, it, 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 there are different types of lock-in. So um, are you locked in because you are using a, uh, a proprietary scheduler, for example, which is what one of the three uh, major cloud platforms is doing, uh, and it's not us? Are you locked in because um, although the scheduler is open source, it's opinionated to the hardware of a, one of those particular um, uh, cloud providers? Um, or are you locked in uh, or are you not locked in is, is, is what we're trying to achieve um, because we're using open source software that is available off the shelf uh, whenever we make changes to that software to enable things to happen in uh, Azure Compute Service, sorry, Azure Container Service, um, we are contributing back to those projects. And that's our approach at the middle layer, at the orchestration layer. We're working with the open source projects that I talked about. We're working within the communities. And any customer can take those same applications, configure them on another environment, whatever environment they want that to be. And as long as they've got the skills to do that, they can then move their application across because it's the same. And then the next layer of potential lock-in is on the infrastructure that you're running on, the virtual machines and all that kind of thing. And you know, it, it's very, very difficult to have zero lock-in at this layer because we're talking about actual physical machines. And you know, if you want to move off the physical machine, you've got to figure out how to how to um, how to reproduce that configuration in a different environment. And so, uh, at that place, that's the point at which any work you do on our container service will be uh, um, will not be transferable to others because we're using the Azure Resource Manager to manage that infrastructure. Um, and the payback for, for that on our part is we're making it as easy as possible to set up and configure that thing. So you don't have to know how to configure Mesos and Swarm and all of the other tools that you need for a production environment. We do that for you. Um, you can take that configuration and move it elsewhere. So you're not locked in once you're willing to invest in reproducing the Apache Mesos and Docker Swarm and all those configurations elsewhere. And even our own configuration code that we're using, even that's open source. So you can go and find the scripts that we're using and use those as a starting point for reproducing in your on-premise environment elsewhere. So we have no secret source anywhere. Well, our secret source is that we're the best cloud. <laughs> okay. You know, people are going to want to come to us because it just runs better on our cloud. But there's no secret source in terms of software, no. Uh, two questions. I need to let you go because uh, for you, the day has start, yeah, started. And for me, I need to go to bed. Uh, <laughs> uh, when do uh, we be able to use Azure Container Service? Uh, when will it be available for, for testing? So there's, there's really three phases to this. The first phase is when can you start up something that looks like the hardware configuration that you would have when we actually have the container service in production. And you can do that today. Um, I will send you a link immediately after we finish this call so you can put it in the show notes. Uh, um, but uh, it's available on GitHub. There is an ARM template there. You can go there, click a deploy to Azure button. Um, and everything will happen from there for you and you can start playing with that configuration today. 
Um, the next stage is when do we go into private preview so that customers can can actually work with the um, the real service, not the ARM template that mocks it up, but the real service with the real endpoints, etc. Um, we're not committing to an exact date, but it will be before the end of this calendar year. Um, and then the final one is when do we go to um, uh, production? And we have absolutely no idea when we're going to production. This is such an early stage in container applications and customers are trying all sorts of different things. There's lots of innovation going on in this space at the moment. Our goal with, with doing this early and doing this in an open fashion is to have customers tell us what they actually need. And we will go to GA when we believe we've built what customers need. We've got a good idea of what we think customers need today, but we haven't, uh, you know, nobody really knows the true answers, not even the customers themselves. When I sit down with a customer now, typically the conversation goes along the lines of, so what's your container story? And I go, well, it depends what you need. What do you need? And they go, no, no, we're looking for you to tell us. And, and so this is a way of kickstarting that process, putting something concrete on the ground that people can run container applications on and give us concrete feedback. So I'd encourage everybody to start to, that's interested to start now with that ARM template, because the earlier we start getting the feedback, the earlier we'll get to GA. And that was uh, the last question. This is a rather new technology. Is it really production ready? The, the Docker and containers technology, I mean. Um, when I talk to customers, I find that customers are um, either just using this in a lab type environment and are concerned about whether it's production ready or they feel that it is production ready and are running it in a dev test environment as a as a, a concrete step towards moving towards uh, being in production um uh or, or the last one is that that they are um they understand that there are people out there running it in production and they want to understand how to apply it to their space. And, and for those people, I would say, no, it's not production ready, because if you're still asking the question, what is a container and how does it apply to me, then it is too early for, for that kind of thing. Um, the best practices are yet to emerge. Um, but for people who really know what they're doing, truly understand the benefits of container technology, it's production ready today. There are plenty of people in production. Um, the container service itself is just using the most mature of those technologies that are being used in production. So we talked about how Twitter, for example, use Mesos um, and, and Airbnb do as well. And, and so that's why we're using Mesos because that component has been proven in production. Um, so it, it, it's it, it's a, I'm hedging the answer there, and and that's why we're doing this out in the open because it is ready for the right kind of customer to go to production. It's not ready for every customer. Thank you very much, Ross, that you took your time from Redmond to talk with me, and uh, I really tried to get into containers, especially when the Windows Server containers, because I I really understand the Windows operating system, even that I'm a Unix hacker from beginning. So thank you very <laughs> much, Ross. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much, Doug. <laughs>